podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, Nietzsche sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We have a live uh, house in the studio today. We've got five people around the table here in our Wharton studio. So we've got a really packed house. We have Gaurav Sinha, who's like myself, a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. We've got Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. I should note our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of seven investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We'll bring in our two guests uh, here in just a minute. But, Professor, just uh, another good day in the markets. we got some positive economic news, some good earnings. What's yeah. what's uh, your thoughts on the sort of bullish tone to, to end the week here? Oh, yeah. I mean, like we're 1% under the all-time high on the S&P, um, and I, it looks like we're going to break it. We've just got a lot of positive movement here in the markets. Uh, let's, uh, since I haven't been out for a couple of weeks, just let me just sort of set the uh, what I see as the situation um, uh, a month ago, it looked like first quarter GDP was coming in in the low ones. Well, now it looks like it's going to be two um, in the first quarter. So things looked a little bit better. Certainly, uh, the employment report uh, last week was, you know, really, a couple weeks ago, was really uh, sort of righted a, a ship that was veering uh, pretty uh, substantially. Uh, the uh, jobless claims, the data is coming in strong again. Now, when I say strong, best estimate to this uh, uh, quarter at these very early stages still under 2%. So we'll, you know, we'll definitely, you know, see what's happening. And the big stimulus of the tax package that was felt last year, we're not benefiting from that. Um, uh, we had a little disruption in the first quarter, government uh, shutdown. Um, but the, the capital markets are back up there. Interest rates are down. Um, I have been on the airwaves, as I mentioned a couple times, saying that the Fed should lower rates. I want some more breathing room between the um, Fed funds rate and the 10-year. By the way, the better economic data have pushed that 10-year up. It was down below 240, which is an inverted curve because the, the Fed funds rate is 240. But right now we're seeing 255. So the better information has uh, has sort of firmed up those uh, longer-term yields. But I still don't think 15 basis points is a real comfortable uh, 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 margin uh, by which to have a, a positive, uh, 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 positively sloped uh, yield curve. Um, uh, we're just at the beginning of earnings season, um, and um, but I think – uh, my estimate of this year is that earnings are going to be 4 to 5% above. 
and so there's not going to be a big push on earnings. We'll see. A lot of it does depend on what happens in the U.S. and, and foreign economies and the dollar, which has been very strong because, again, with our interest rates at 2.5% and the rest of the world at zero or negative, uh, there's a really good uh, margin here. By the way, one thing that a lowering of uh, the Fed funds rate would do, it would set the dollar down a bit, and that would be very, very good for profits of uh, of firms that sell overseas, which, of course, is a good percentage of our um, uh, S&P 500. Now, coming into this year, Professor, I know you were calling, uh, you know, maybe at most 10 to 15, and we're basically right there. So are you getting more cautious? At yeah, how, I mean, how do you I think I, about what we've I, already seen. I, you know, someone asked me on my my, my um, projection on, on S&P this year, we're at 2905 right now. I think we're going to get to to 3000, but that's only a little over a 3% rise, a three or three and a half. So I, I think I see up to 5%. Now, again, you know, uh, trend followers are coming back onto this market because we've so steady gain. You know, the VIX is at 12 and a half. It could, we know it can go down to nine, which would mean a trend upwards like this for another couple of months. You know, uh, Trump announces a deal with China. We're going to get a five to 10 percent pop. But I, I, I don't see a big follow through on, on that pop because, again, it has to face earnings. I think we're at 18 and a half times earnings, not expensive, but not cheap. I still think you know, that opportunities abroad are better. And, um, you know, I've been talking about the emerging markets. They technically look very, very good and been holding their own, uh, their own uh, recently. Uh, so stocks are certainly not at all dangerously overpriced. But in the U.S., I think they are now fully priced. Um, doesn't mean they can't go higher. But we know that in the short run, we can go 20 percent above or below or even more. Um, but uh, one should be really cautious. A, a big rise on anything now, I think, would be an opportunity to take some profits and maybe move into some of the lower-priced uh, international stocks. I'm going to just bring in one of my guests here for a second. We have Srinivas Thiravantai, if I got that name pronounced right, Director of Research for the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. I know you are big macro and think about the markets at a high level like Professor Siegel, so I'll just bring you in for a second here. Any quick comments uh, on the professor's comments and then anything uh, to, to add to that, uh, just jump into the conversation here. Yeah, I mean, I think the one big disagreement is on the international uh, stocks. And I think it, we have been uh, bearish on international talk relative to the U.S. for a, quite a while, since 2013, on and off. And uh, structurally since 2013, but on and off tactically. And the major reason is, um, as you can see, you can see it in the interest rates, the difference between we are at two and a half, nobody is close to that. And the main reason is the global economy um, is is dealing with higher levels of debt than the U.S., whether it is China or whether it is Europe or Australia, Canada. And the second thing is um, you have a situation where these countries basically depend on demand from other countries, especially the U.S. U.S. runs a very large trade deficit. So they don't manufacture their own demand. And as a result, they are like buoys in the ocean being bobbed around by what happens in the U.S. or what happens in China. And and you could see when China was slowing down last year, it had tremendous impact on Europe. And even this year, you saw the, the impact on Germany. And And those are the main reasons why we don't feel so great about the rest of the world. Yeah, let me just respond to that, and I think a lot of what you say is true. I find that in the long run, valuation trumps growth. 
in the sense that the total returns, I mean, that's one reason why, you know, over really long periods of time, value stocks do better. They don't grow as much on their earnings, but the valuation being lower allows for the reinvested dividends and, 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 and the way we calculate returns to actually exceed it. So you're, you're, you're right. Um, I mean, and, and, and certainly you have been right going backward. I congratulate you on, on, a, on, on a good call a few years ago. But we're seeing Europe at 13. Um, we're seeing emerging markets, well, ranging down to 10 or 11. Even if they are uh, challenged somewhat on growth, uh, at those uh, earnings yields, uh, I think they're attractive. So, um, you know, that's, that's just uh, the way I would look at it. Yeah, I mean, one place I, I we are actually very positive is Japan, and and that's where we feel even though the valuation per se is not necessarily really cheap, but we do feel that Japan is one of those international places where we would like to be uh, invested in a longer term. And Japan, sense. I see. I'm just looking at that. Yeah, I mean, the Nikkei has always has a higher PE ratio the, and a the price weighting. I, I see twelve and a half, a thirteen, a thirteen on this this last year's. Twelve and a half if on 2019 earnings. That's that's really quite reasonable. Yeah. Now, when I look at uh, so I look at a, uh, you know, we have a basket of. I do small caps. I do exporters. Uh, the, the exporter large cap multinationals actually for the developed world is actually when I look at it, it's the cheapest basket I look at it of all the sort of 40 plus indexes I have. It's 11 to 12 times mm-hmm. on a dividend weighted exporter basket, three percent kind of dividend yields. I, I, and that is the lowest probably in 30 years for Japan. Yeah. Um, So what what is your thesis on liking Japan there? So if you look at Japan, among all the major developed countries, major countries in the world, including developing ones, um, Japan has got, in terms of corporate sector debt, they they are the ones who have cleaned up the balance sheets completely. The corporate sector debt, if you take out the cash, is lower than where it was in 1970. So they've essentially all the bubble economy and the the last 20 years of, they've, they've completely cleaned up the corporate sector balance sheet. On the domestic side, they've also not invested for a long time. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. pent-up demand for capital spending, especially among the for catering to the domestic economy. So all their problems are really coming from the export side. If you see their machinery orders from Japan down, from China down 50%, that's yeah. their weakness. If you looked at the Tankan survey, you will see they break it up into large firms and the overall Tankan. And I like to look at they, the Tankan gives actual minus forecast. Uh, actual and forecast. And you will see the actual conditions are consistently beating forecast, which means people, because of the last 20 years of weakness, they're consistently pessimistic, and the actual outcomes are consistently coming better than their pessimism. And it's especially true for the overall than for the large companies, which is telling me that Japan's domestic economy is doing fine. Mm. And you can see it also in the labor market. Professor, I, I know you got a few more minutes here. Just any final comments on, on what you've heard so far? Uh, no, I, 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 I think that they have cleaned up those balance sheets, and, 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 and that's important. Um, as I say, I'll tell you, I mean, the, the momentum players are beginning to come back. We've had this steady flow of money in. We're just getting the earnings early. You know, the banks come first, a little bit of surprise on, on, on the upside. Um, so I, I can see this trend going, uh, going uh, forward again. Um, and uh, I think, you know, with, with, when you're within 1%, I think a new all-time record is uh, certainly uh, in the cards in just a very few days. Very good. Thanks for joining us for some commentary, Professor. 
Thanks for having me. Now, let me bring in uh, my other guests. We do have a PAX studio. Again, we have from, from Wisdom Tree, we have Gaurav Sinha, uh, who's a asset allocation strategist, works on our Modern Alpha team with Lee Chen Ren, who's our director of Modern Alpha. We have Steve Cordasco, who's the founder and CEO of the Ford Cordasco Financial Network, local from Philly, but down from the shore here today. Uh, mm-hmm. And then again, we've got uh, Srinivas of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. Um, Steve, let me bring you into the conversation a little bit less Macro focus. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the Cordasco Financial Network. Well, we're financial planners for your life and wealth, and where we listen to the deep conversation that just took place. Average everyday folks who are planning for their longer term wealth, maybe for their retirement down the road, um, can get confused by the type of dialogue that can go on and the language within our industry. So, what we do is we try to educate. Uh, people, average everyday people, uh, about the world of money and wealth, uh, numbers, which scare a lot of people. There were a lot of numbers thrown around there, uh, 2.5 something, the Fed basis points. And uh, for a lot of people, it, 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 it's a struggle to stay in that conversation. So uh, we like to pride ourselves in in being planning focused and within that plan, educate, give clarity, and guidance. Those are the three pillars that kind of direct us. And we have fun helping educate people with what that dialogue means that uh, Professor Siegel just had with, you know, the smart people here at the table. Uh, now, when you, when you think about you also do a lot of radio yourself and, and podcasting now. Tell us a little bit about the uh, your, mm-hmm. your, your radio exploits. So... I don't know. I've worked for CBS, um, the Wall Street Journal. They have a morning radio show, so I've done fill-in work there. Uh, Larry Kudlow, I would fill in for the rare times he would take off in New York when he was on uh, WABC. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in the Philadelphia uh, area, uh, took over for a gentleman named Harry Gross, who used mm-hmm. to be on the radio here. And so uh, I've done a fair amount of, of educating people through the airwaves. Uh, for the last 25 years. And now, but you, you, you told me you were just going more towards podcasting. Yeah, so we've kind of developed our podcasting side because the sort of radio world has gone what's called pay to play. So you have to kind of put money up to be on the air. And so as me being an employee of media companies, I decided I didn't want to play in that game. So mm. we created a, a podcasting format. It does air um, in Philadelphia on 990 WNTP, which is a sound communication property. But uh, it's done in a studio just like this in yeah. my office. So I can stay close to my clients, close to the pulse of what's going on. Um, and we do a once a week uh, podcast slash radio broadcast. And it's fun. What's it called? Your Life, Your Wealth. And you can go to your wealth, your life, your com, and there's about 200 plus episodes there and, and built in an educational format. So hopefully you'll find it uh, enlightening. Well, here on Sirius XM 132, it's not a pay to play, but I don't get paid to do it either. Right. So <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a useful format for me to get to meet good people like, like Srinivas here to come down, like you. Uh, we've been to some clients of the firm and doing some work together, and it's good to. And you can down. tell it's not pay to play because you haven't given phone numbers out, <laughs> and and you better call now, and you haven't scared people to death with fear, and you better hurry up because we have a secret solution. So, unfortunately, in the world of money and finance and and the stuff going on, um, um, it, it's confusing enough to follow some of the dialogue that that might come at the deeper level, the the, the kind of academia world where it meets those that are part of the profession of of money and finance. But when you bring it down to Main Street, go from Wall Street to Main Street, that's that crossover that we like to be at. But it, it, get, it does get confusing because – and today you don't know what's 
fake news. You don't know what's fake finance and what's the real stuff. So you guys do good work here because uh, uh, it's not pay to play and it is educational and it, it can get deep and then you can bring it back to to the understandable stuff that, that Main Street understands. Now, you mentioned um, one of the things that you guys focus on a lot is sort of behavioral finance and the issues you're dealing with your clients. Like what, when, you're, when you're talking to clients, what are the, some of the things that they're, you're most trying to work with them on in, in terms of keeping their behavior in check? So one of the things I try to do quickly is put myself in the shoes of whoever it is I'm, I'm speaking to. And so what I've done is I try to put myself in the shoes of a client who might be listening to the dialogue that Professor Siegel had had with everyone here at the table. And, and that within that dialogue, people have what's called their fast money mind. It's how impulsively quickly they think about something, and then they have a slow money mind. What we try to do with clients or people who need financial help, we want to know what their DNA is with regards to numbers and money and their own life. And so we measure that. We get data from their fast money and slow money mind. Right away, I'm thinking as that dialogue was taking place is overseas investing good or bad uh, it looks like we're hitting the top part of the market and you might want to get defensive the next wave up i'm thinking what those impulsively fast money minds there's three types and there's someone who is a fear money mind that's the most dominant money mind well right away they want to put their money under the mattress when they hear something like that i better get out now because i heard what professor siegel said uh, I heard somebody, Jim Cramer, when the market was doing poorly about two months ago, say, this is the first time I ever said this on this show, CDs. Your local bank CDs are paying a certain percentage. And he couldn't have been any more wrong, but the fear-minded individual probably jumped and went and bought a CD at 2% and the market went off to the races. So it's there's fast money mind, there's slow money mind, it's educating people on what that is so that when you hear some of the news, when you get some data or impulsively you want to maybe take uh you want to buy something like a beach house because you spent a week in ocean city and it's coming to the end and you're walking the boardwalk and saying look at this we want one of these and you go to the open house and you start to think about buying that's your fast money mind the slow money mind comes into play when you actually have to write the check and look around to see where the money is and and you and you're just buying a tesla is that what i understand your yeah, fast just, was that your fast money mind or your slow money mind that was my slow money mind impulsively my fast money mind wanted to buy it as soon as i saw it and i see the commercial and gorov so. here <laughs> one of my one of my guys you love the tesla right gorov I absolutely love it. I think that anybody in the car market should not be even considering any other car. <laughs> well, I got to say, impulsively, like my fast money mind made me want one. My slow money mind said, geez, what if Tesla goes out of business and I am stuck with this really fancy product that's got a lot of support from Tesla and it's not there. But I was on a program like this and I met a woman analyst who is a big advocate for Tesla. This was probably three or four months ago. And really gave me a, a a good comfort level of why their data shows that Tesla is going to be a household brand and the products they make will be life-changing and they will be a disruptor, so to speak. They are in the process of disrupting and they will be a survivor disruptor. So it gave me a little bit more confidence. So, so, so Gaurav, why, why do you say it's the only car people should have? Well, I mean, first of all, it's it's a very advanced technical gadget um, and and the idea of moving from an internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle the whole experience is in itself uh, a, a very diff it's an experience difficult to describe because when you are driving a car a regular car you press the pedal 
gas flows in there is an ignition so there's always a lag in terms of acceleration in, in, mechanical engineering has been trying to reduce that gap but that gap is still there in electric motor you turn it on and it bounces off so i like you know the driving pleasure of the car and also it helps the planet a little bit let me just reintroduce our, our guests, our studio here. We have Gaurav Sinha, we have Lee Chen Ren, Director Martin Alpha Wilson Steve Cordasco, and Srinivas Thiruvantai. I'm going to get that name wrong a number of times, Srinivas. Um, what, now, you've done your work in, uh, he focuses, Steve focuses a lot on behavioral finance, but you did a, a PhD in this kind of area. Yeah. So back then, one of the, one of the topics that was very interesting was um, the, the mathematical modeling of these uh, quirks in human behavior. You know, you, you've seen uh, Richard Taylor get his PhD for that. So how do human beings make these inconsistent decisions, right? One example of that is, okay, we have a term paper coming on Friday, and we should really be working, and it's Monday, we should be working evenly for the next four days, but on the the Monday, you decides no, really, I'm not going to do. It. I'm going to party today, and I'm going to do it over the next four days. But the Tuesday, you now is no longer listening to the Monday, you. You are now it's in charge, and so and ultimately, you end up procrastinating and doing all the work in the end. But the what changed between Monday and Tuesday that that made you change your decision? Nothing changed, right? But it's just that our decision making is not consistent. Um, and so these are the type type of quirky things that leads to, in fact, you know, a lot of the problems that that Steve is talking about in in trying to manage clients is really about pe- managing people's psychology. And sometimes it helps having another person do that. And that's the biggest service most investment uh, advisors can do for their clients is really telling them about their own quirks and how to avoid those things. What was the book you were just telling us about that, that you... Uh, if- so there is a... This one is more about the even deeper foundations. I mean, if you take Tversky and Kahneman, you know, they're they are talking about it from the psychologist's perspective, but the deeper neurological foundations of decision-making is a book called Subliminal by... I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name right, by George Mladenov. Um, it's a really good book. It, it talks about how the subconscious brain is in charge most of the time making the decisions. And the conscious brain is really actually there as kind of justifying those decisions. And, and really, most of the time when we think, we think all this conscious brain, but really we, are, really we are not doing very rational decisions. And Steve, how does that come to your clients? Um, it's that enlightening and, and, and the key to doing good financial planning is to being able to uncover. So for a lot of, of professionals in our industry who hang a shingle out, say they're a financial planner, well, well, tell me how you go about it. There's usually a discovery phase. And, and you sort of have to be somewhat entrepreneurial spirited to, to, to change the data gathering process because our industry has got this checklist and this is what you need to know and this means you know your client. Well, not really. <laughs> you know, just because you know where they live, their name, address, phone number, and social security number and the fact that they like to golf or cook doesn't really mean you know them, in my opinion. And my opinion is money decisions and wealth where it meets someone's life, we really need to know who they are. And what where I got my motivation for this was when somebody brought it to my attention. It happened to be Barron's, and there was a conference going on. They said, you know, you're somewhat unique in your practice, and that is your practice has a larger number than most of single women. And we found that those single women are widows. But what we found is that in our, our my practice, 92% of women who lose their husband keep their money with us. 
the industry average is 60 uh, I'm sorry the industry average is 86% of women who lose their husband fire their lifelong financial advisor within the first 18 months so I've learned the question why why is that and it turns out we're a male dominated industry did you ever see the commercial maybe some of you are too young at the table but there was when EF Hutton speaks people listen Listen, and that was a famous commercial of a bunch of white guys in suits sitting around a really nice restaurant in New York. There were no women in the room, and the industry was brought up on this list of questions connecting with the alpha male who tended to be the stock and bond guy in the house. So planning causes more dialogue to happen, but what really was an enlightening moment for me was when somebody came to me and said, you know, Joe passed away. I'm back. And I said, you know, I feel really bad. You know, I hope everything's okay. He said, no, I'm, I'm having a wonderful life since he's been gone. Well, what's so wonderful? I didn't want to be in Florida. I said, well, when y'all retired and went to Florida, I thought it was a rewarding moment. And she says, I didn't want to go. I felt bad. He worked his whole life. I raised the kids. He wanted to golf. It was all a warmer client. We went down. I said, what did you want? She said, I just want to be around my grandbabies who all were back home. I've got a pretty good story on, on this exact topic, so I have some, something close to home, that where the husband and the, you know, and the wife and uh, the, the advisor more or less not fired the father, but the mother stayed with the advisor, and uh, it was a very similar, st- not exactly the same story, but yeah. it's similar, and she's the better client because she follows his advice, <laughs> whereas he would never follow his advice. The reason why he got fired is because yeah, yeah. he didn't listen to him, and that's right. she could actually take his advice and be a good listener, to yeah. your point, whereas he had his own ideas and never did anything, actually. Well, what's interesting here is that even if we tried to create dialogue, there was such a fear factor of the other person opening up. Fear in that, I don't understand money. I don't understand the world of finance. I'm walking into a place where people are in suits, and it's I, I, it doesn't engage me. I don't open up. And even when you're sitting with, with two individuals that the wealth is accumulated together, um, there's usually a silent spouse, we call it, and good discovery, which we call uncovering, will get that dialogue happening. And so using tools that, you know, like my good friends here at the table and, and, and just we're here at Wharton School and, and the University of Pennsylvania academia can bring to the table to help us get people to talk about the complicated world of money. It will help their life be better down the road. It, it reduces anxieties and fears. If you know somebody is ridden for anxiety and fear, because that's how they're wired, their DNA it all goes back to our roots and people who came up through depression or or saw a mishap in their house, maybe a bankruptcy in, in, in a business that the family owned, have their, their, their embedded reactions to money and wealth. And so we enjoy doing that work. And I think that work needs to be done so we can tie this other work in that everybody here does research and and investment management and and it's a team effort so we're all on the same team it's just making sure products match the individuals correctly thank you for mentioning i mean uh in the financial industry there definitely more could be done you know to get more women to go through this fear factor i think a lot of women didn't get into finance um you know field uh through also a little bit you know intimidated by the culture but one thing i i personally uh, dear to me i love 
finance and fashion. But every time you look at pictures of men dressed up and and the designers who does for women, they have sleeveless, you know, work clothes for women. Yet for men, you have you know a shirt and a tie. And in the office, it's so cold. I mean, like <laughs> I, one I, of the one of the the women on our team sits in with a uh, like an Arctic uh, with the, the, the Canadian, Canadian goose. goose. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of designers, right? Like they they design you know clothing for men, but you know they design these work clothes for women, which is really not suitable for. Well, us. And I will start wearing my. <laughs> we call them. I shouldn't say the, the word, but yeah, I'll I, start I wearing my my <laughs> sleeveless T-shirts to the office, and that'll make everybody fair. I know they always you know, nobody designs sleeveless shirts for men, but all their dresses. Fashion are, and finance. <laughs> uh, this is a passion of Leecha, and our producer is not happy with this topic of conversation. <laughs> uh, we got to bring it back, bring it back. But so, we're going to come. I want to get back to some some macro discussion with Srinivas in the second half of the program. But Steve, any sort of final thoughts on just how you're and the behavioral finance issues that you're managing for clients and, and sort of this fa- thinking fast and thinking slow brain that you're talking about? Yeah, the world of finance and money can be scary and and overwhelming and doesn't make you feel empowered. But there's a way in which you can understand how it works for you um, in a way that's probably not so scary. Um, and that's what I really like about Professor Siegel and that it's not so much doom and gloom. It's it's hey, the future's bright. And, you know, here we are in in a country that all of us have or at least have the opportunity to have a vested interest in the products we buy, whether we like the fashion or not, the companies that are publicly traded, and that can create wealth for ourselves. And there's been a lot of of, of fear because of the language of our industry. And so I always believe there's a way and we need to educate people so that the products that are created, um, the research that's done, the good data and science that's out there matches up well with all of us. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you're listening to the Behind the Market podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, along with Lee Chen Ren, talking with Gaurav Sinha, uh, who's a asset allocation strategist, works on our Modern Alpha team with Lee Chen Ren, who's our director of Modern Alpha. We have Steve Cordasco, who's the founder and CEO of the Cordasco Financial Network, local from Philly, but down from the shore here today. Uh, mm-hmm. And then again, we've got uh, Srinivas of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. To maybe just talk a little bit more on some of your world views on just where the markets are and and uh, and going into that macro starting point a little bit more. Right. I think uh, right now um, we are more, I would say, on the bearish side of the markets globally and and including the U.S. Uh, and our view is that look, the earnings for the first quarter, you know, they were already marked down, and so they're going to beat that probably in a, the usual beats, but. But as far as second quarter and where they guide is going to be critical here. And if you look at the high-frequency data that are coming in, like railroads, that's one comes in every week, and you can see that there's not really any pickup in the U.S. activity at all. Um, and even the China data, I mean, that came out today, and everybody's so excited about it. And if you look at it, their imports actually fell more than where the market, so uh, what the expectation was. So their imports is what other people are selling to them. So what other people are selling to them is actually still going down. And so that's uh, our major concern for the global economy because there are two twin engines are essentially the U.S. and China, and China in particular for many of the real side stuff. But the U.S. is still financially dominant. And so, um, and 
and both are kind of the U.S. is softening because of the uh, because of the, the, the fiscal stimulus is now fading, and and China because they are not stimulating as much as they need to to get the economy back on track. Um, now, when when you, the way you guys look at the world view, talk, the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, just give us a little bit more background on what you guys do and and how and how you guys look at the world. Yeah, so our view is that our framework is a very financially oriented framework. So what we basically are looking at is the flow of funds that go to make corporate profits in the aggregate. Uh, it's it's not adding up profits from bottom up, you know, because it's fallacy of composition when you actually do things from the aggregate side. Um, and um, and and we tie that to the balance sheets of the private sector, the how our balance sheets behaving and how balance sheets expanding and contracting and how that ties into the flow of funds that go into make corporate profits. Let me just give you one flavor of of how a lot of intuition is often wrong. For any single firm, if you cut costs the company's bottom line is improving, right? But if the entire corporate sector is cutting wages, then those wages flow back into the corporate sector as revenue. Those wage, revenues are also going down. So those feedback loops make it very different when you're looking at it from the aggregate perspective than bottom-up. And, and so that's one of, the, one of the ways we look at the world. That's our basic framework. Now, you mentioned your partner, sort of David Levy, yeah. he, and he's had, his worldview has been, we've been in sort of forever lower Interesting. rates. Is, yeah. So David, uh, he, this has been his family business for two, two generations. His grandfather actually came up with the framework, but you know, basically his father started the, the business of forecasting. But they've always made most of their money from investing where their where their forecast is. So that's how they do it, and they're very very uh, mavericks. Uh, for example, David has been through all these bull markets. Has always been very long bonds. Um, because he saw that the the global balance sheets, as they grow bigger relative to income, you need lower and lower interest rate to justify those asset valuations and and make the debt service uh, possible, right? I mean, there's more debt related to income. That's fine, but you need to drop rates. And so, so that's what he's been doing. And periodically, when you get a crisis, you get to low, get nearer and nearer the floor. And that you, he he took uh, more aggressive bets for those by buying euro dollar calls, and that's been his his uh, game. And uh, and the rates is it like Kudlow, who just said rates are never going up in his lifetime. Is that the uh, is, that, is that the view? <laughs> lifetime is a long time, so <laughs> there, no, no, we don't. Nobody can make that kind of a forecast. But rates are not going up for a long time. That is true. Could it be like the nineteen seventies Newsweek cover? Equities are dead. <laughs> Stocks are dead, or whatever the framework then, is. It's like as soon as somebody says it, it's like no. right. No, I mean the rates are. He is he is right on this. Although I have actually disagreed with him. At one time, I was actually on a. <laughs> so uh, he is right. You validate this. On, okay, on, thank on you for the validation. Him, on a debate uh, with him, um, <laughs> I did disagree vehemently, but on this particular topic, he is not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah. Um, and what? So if you thought that where rates were coming out to a bottom. So Japan has been in this sort of low rates yeah. forever kind of period. Right. It's, it's, are, are we becoming Japan? Is it going to be a low rates forever? I mean, we're not exactly becoming Japan. Japan has a, a extreme... Uh, first of all, their bubble was more extreme. And number two, they also have a worsening demographic related to us. And we, in fact, among all the major countries in the world, have one of the best demographics. So we are not Japan, but we are cl- much closer to them than than most people recognize, you know, and you can see the trajectory, mm-hmm. Europe and us, you know, we've been moving, uh, following Japan down to the to the floor. Two things. We're, we're, we're not Japan, but the demographics, you say, are more favorable. But we're also, we seem to be an economy that's pr- 
price for picture perfection. So we might have a better demographic, but does the demographic support our benchmark of of where how we're pricing things today? Right. Right now, how we are pricing things certainly, probably from a longer term perspective, are not <laughs> not cheap. Certainly, as as Professor Siegel himself said, it's not cheap. With demographics and, being the topic of conversation of what we're evaluating. Right. So okay. the the key with with demographics, though, is um, at the end of the day, if you have an aging society, you are not buying stuff. Most people who are old, if you look around, they already have the stuff, and what they want to consume is services. Right. But a capitalist economy, even though we say we are a service-oriented economy, the dynamism comes from from making stuff and building stuff, whether it is houses or whether it is cars or you know. So when you have a young um, young population that's growing and then building their families, what do you do first? You build, you you buy your house and then you have to furnish the whole house, right? But when you're old, you're not doing those things. Downside. Where are you on the front of? We just talked about Tesla, for example, and I. The reason why I I went to Tesla's obviously for the self-driving components the technology of course I want to you know I, I, I love our you know beautiful earth but you know at the end of the day it's 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 still everything comes down to economics unfortunately but fortunately so <clears throat> with that said I look at the experience of buying a Tesla and there are quite a few humans that have been moved out of the equation for example there's no longer a commission salesperson on the sell side of that. There's also um, algorithms built in that help build that car, that that there's no doubt if I look at the Tesla model, there's gotta be less human touch to building that vehicle. So if it goes back to building, but yet this is the trend of technology, we're priced for perfection, but yet we do have demographics better than everybody else, but the demographics aren't still where the baby boomers peaked. 2554s are not spending the way the last group of 2554 spent. So with all that said, I know it's a lot to cover, but you, you know where I'm going. Right. No, no, I I think I agree with you. I think there are a lot of challenges in the, in this country, and part of the problem comes from the fact that uh, for the millennial generation, getting in uh, to the getting in is expensive, right? Whether they're buying stocks, whether they're buying houses, or whether they they have a student loan, you know, and that's partly the reason why you don't see the same push that came from the baby boomers. When the baby boomers were getting into their buying years, things were relatively cheap. Even though we had the inflation of the 70s, uh, income also went up along with that inflation. So if you look at house relative to income, was was relatively affordable compared to where it is today. Yeah, and I struggle with that because if you look at it, it's. It, it, I still talk to people who had interest rates three times what they are today. Right. Two times when they're going out to buy, that interest rate stays with you unless you can refi on the way down. So, yes, prices were lower relative, so were incomes. And when you look at this whole thing, we, we it seems like everybody, our political system, wants to point a finger at the at the wound part of it, and that is, look how expensive houses are, but wait a minute, look what the what cost Waiting to get into forward, a house, yeah, it's different. So <laughs> yeah, and the fact that incomes aren't where they need to be, uh, you know, incomes are there, I'm willing to pay anybody the sky. There is no glass ceiling at the firm I work for. Right. It's easy. Do business. I'll pay all you want to pay, just like I can, sky's the limit for me. Jeff Bezos, sky was the limit on what he could create. So somebody else go and create it, and you can, cre- you can be that person. 
Right. I mean, look, I think uh, there are two separate issues here. For a person uh, person like you, or, or you know, which is not representative of the, of the average American, remember, I mean, yes, it but is why? true. America is a great, a great country for people who are go-getters, and it is the greatest place. And that's why we create enormous amount of wealth. There's no doubt that America is, is still an enormously great place for anybody who has the drive and the and the ability and the vision and the smartness and all those things to to succeed. The thing is, a vast majority of the people, this is not a knock on the vast majority of the people. The vast majority of the people are not going to be that for whatever the reasons are. And that's complicated. And I don't know the answer to that. I wish I knew the answer to that. That's an important part of investing for the long term. And in my opinion, because it that, talks that about I agree trends and we go into, you know, at, at, is there a, a new generation of those in Japan or in India or in China or here in the U.S. that have felt enough pain to say it's now time, OK, to uh, uh, to take my own accountability and responsibility. And, and if I want something that somebody else has, then I have to go out and be able to do what's needed. And and that. That's another piece of variables that when it comes to, I guess, the bottom-up approach, right. you know, how do you account or do you avoid that because there's so little data? You know what I mean? It's almost like it's a rearview mirror thing. I think it's a complicated sociological question for which I'm not sure I'm competent enough to answer. Let me put it this way. I mean, it's beyond my pay grade. And it is certainly a very important question. I, I think people should be looking into it. I don't have that. And I bring it up only because when I talk about Main Street meeting Wall Street, this is where they are. This is stuff to them that looks like common sense. I look around and I see who's around me and what's happening and complaint and either occupy, we'll keep politics out of it, but whatever it might be. There's, we're politically charged society more so than any time in our history, although history hasn't changed that much because you can go back and read about Teapot Dome and other things and shut your eyes and take the words out and you wake up and you're like, this could be today. But my point is is this. The average everyday people that I began the show talking about think like this. I'm right. bringing to you the dialogue I have with them because we talk a lot about that in science. They're talking a lot about common sense. You know, how's this common sense? I live on the bay. I had a client the other day. I live on the bay. I've been here for 30 years. The water level hasn't gone up or down any more than it's supposed to. So uh, why are you telling me this? Hi, Steve. Um, so I think talking about the common sense, right? Like in investment, one of the common sense idea is glide path. Like, you know, as you get older, you kind of uh, invest more a little bit on bonds. But from, since you have so much experiences actually planning for you know, other people's retirement, what's your view on that? On, say it again. on like the, the glide path of target date funds. Like there's oh. this common sense as, you know, mm-hmm. based on your age, you know, if you're 50, you put 50% in bonds. That That's like the common kind of rule of thumb. But you probably have much more. Yeah. And so that goes along the lines also a little bit of roboing because they, they, they build roboing and, and, and all off that same platform. Look, for people who have a 401k or people that don't kind of know how to do it themselves, it's okay to do that. And I got to tell you, a lot of financial planners follow the same model. The thing is, like for us, we rebalance quarterly. So those funds that are there will do it also internally so it can be very cost effective. Here's the problem, though. All this noise that we just talked about where I steered some conversation, I apologize for that because I wanted to bring up keywords of demographics to bring it to what Main Street people are saying. When they watch what's on this television or hear what's coming through the airwaves or get confused because their common sense of what they're seeing around them doesn't make sense to them or when they get yanked where there's a downturn in the market to think that they're going to lose everything, they get in the way of doing – we're detrimental to ourselves 
and and that panic sets in whether you have a target date fund or not. I mean, we could sit here all day long and show you the data that says you had a 90% probability over 30 years, you put your money in that, you're going to be more wealthy than when you started. Very high probability of that. But we can't get out of the way of ourselves. We can't because we're in it every day. We're looking around and we, we very rarely take a step out. And so sometimes, you know, early on in someone's wealth creation, they don't see it as broadly because they don't have as much wealth tied up in the markets or in investments, things they can't control, right? You can control going to work each day. You can control, you know, maybe trying to earn extra by working overtime and accumulating. You can control by cutting your own debt in your house or line item budgets. But you can't control what's going on in these markets. That's why people tune in to hear what we're saying because they want to hear, they want to get a comfort level. When we get in the way of that and 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 our emotional side of it takes over to, to be, we become emotionally irrational, that's why those things don't work. Do you see sometimes, right. okay, so asset allocation, diversifying across different markets and, and, and places around the globe long-term? What about short-term? Like, for example, we were looking at our investment team at some things that were happening here in the U.S. that had some concern and looked around and said, geez, emerging markets looks like where money's going to be treated best here in the short-term while we wait. We're still invested, but we're waiting for the long-term picture to evolve or at least get through some speed bumps along the way. How much short-term play goes into the asset allocation modeling with that long-term overlay? It does. I think, I mean, first of all, anything in investing has a dimension of time. That What is your investment time horizon that you're looking for? Now, if you're looking for a relatively shorter horizon, being more tactical with your rebalancing and being more tactical with your bets is more important. If you're looking for a longer time horizon, I think you can, you know, you have to take away, take a step back from the day-to-day market noise, day-to-day earnings and what's going on. And it's a very lively place. Market is a very lively place. Mm -hmm. For a long-term picture, you got to take it, zoom out, think on the broader terms. If you are in the business of making quick money or your time horizon is less, then yes, you need to be in the marketplace, Be know what, what's going on, focus on earnings, focus on you know all the economic data that's coming in, and then rebalance your portfolio, either quarterly, monthly, or whatever is your frequency. Mm-hmm. Srinath, Sh- it's one of the things on this emerging markets decision. I, I, the, the view on the dollar is a very important one. And I saw you on Twitter had posted some charts on the on on the valuation of the dollar. Now, there's some purchasing power parity concepts that says the dollar is quote-unquote overvalued. You would put a chart on interest rate differentials, I believe, that said right. the dollar was cheap. Is that is that right? What, what were you showing? Where do you, where's your sense on the dollar? So my, my sense of the dollar is the dollar is still uh, has it's still in a bull market. And here is um, uh, my, my, our research. What it shows is that the longer term driver of the dollar, I mean, from three to five year horizon, is the differential growth rates between the between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And that has been, the U.S. has been outperforming the rest of the world, not in absolute terms, but in relative terms, you know, because, I mean, absolute terms, China is growing at 6%. So, you know, that that's always... If you but, believe the 6%. Uh, yes, <laughs> the numbers as they are. Um, so, so the differential terms, the U.S. has been outperforming. And in fact, if you look at the industrial production difference between the U.S. and the rest of the world, it's at a 20-year high. It's the highest since the Asian crisis. And you know what the dollar was doing back then. So... Um, so the dollar is there is a tailwind behind it, and the the conditions still continue to favor that as we look out, and that's another reason why 
we feel like we don't want to be in the global stocks from a purely tactical point of view is if you look at the outperformance of global stocks related to the U.S. in dollar terms for the dollar investor, it's always when the dollar does poorly. So it's very correlated. So you have a view on the dollar, basically. That's but what it is. Now, you know, I have a lot of opinions on that. But that's that's also where you don't have to bet on the euro going up. And you can neutralize these currencies. And you can bet hedged. And in the developed world, you're getting paid 3% because of these interest rate differentials. Yeah. That So now, I fully get it, unhedged. Um, now, it, But to Professor Siegel's point, he was saying at the start of the show, if the, one of the best cases for the U.S. is if the dollar goes down. But what if you're right and the dollar goes up? Then you want – then the then the S&P – and you could say the earnings in the S&P are going to decline 4% this quarter because of the dollar, actually. And so I actually think foreign can be a better diversifier as long as you're not betting on the euro. As long as, as, long as you're as you not take, yes, yes, as long yes, as you're taking, the which currency. is which is your your point, and yes. I that I tend to agree with, and that you guys have done, uh, you know, you know, tried to develop that team and 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 bring products in that. I mean, I agree with that, and I I don't have a disagreement with yeah. that. And, and but you know, see, when the dollar goes up, the U.S. domestically oriented stocks like the Russell, for instance, you know, yeah. the, the small caps, they tend to do better, right? Yeah, you would think you would think that. Um, so we got we're in our final two minute countdown. Any closing thoughts from you on the macro side? Things we haven't covered? No, I guess we pretty much covered everything. I from what I it, yeah, it was it was we covered a very wide range. <laughs> See our final our final two minutes. So as you think about the people who should be reaching out to the Cordasco group, what things that you you just sort of emphasize on uh, people who need help people who want help navigating their wealth and how their wealth ties to their life. And I think everybody should have a plan. Those who have a plan fare better than those who don't. And you take big market corrections. Those that did well during market corrections had a plan. And uh, any other places they can find uh, more information on both of you? Uh, For me, it's cfnplan.com. That's our website. It's Cordasco Financial Network, cfnplan.com. Thank you Uh, for having me. Thank you. And our our website is www.levyforecast.com. And I tweet at at T-E-A-S-R-I. T three T as in the drink T and three is the short form of my first name. Srinivas. Yeah, uh, I won't, won't get the, the last name right now. Thiravantai. Yeah. How am I doing? You're you're doing okay. Don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> we have Lee Shen Ren, Gaurav Sinha. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. This has been a great uh, a great show on Behind the Markets, our our, our biggest roundtable in the studio. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Daniel Bruno, as uh, for helping us with our, our podcast every week, where you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 